Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Duke Basketball Report podcast. This is episode 23, and we are here on Friday, April 10th. We are recording about a few days after, uh, you guessed it, we won the national championship. This is going to be sort of a recap of the season, and we're going to get into our offseason kind of routine with talking about uh, people who may be going pro uh, and other little hot topics that are appropriate for Duke Nation. But first, as always, my colleagues, Jason Evans, live from Atlanta. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm still basking in the glory. I'm still basking in the afterglow of a national title. As am I. And all the way out. Are you in Denver, Sam? I'm Sam back home, finally. He is in Denver, ladies and gentlemen. He has returned back to his home. And I know Denver missed you, but uh, it was it was also kind of cool to have you on my couch for one of these one of these episodes. Hey, it Sam, was... how many different states have you been in, in the past month? Um, a lot. <laughs> too, Good answer. I, too many I, to I count. Had, I had this sort of awkward amount of time between finishing graduate school and going back to work, which is happening next week. So I think I took like full advantage of it uh, and capped it off by going to the national championship game. So I think uh, the the kids today I think referred at this time period is fun employment. Uh, and I think I took the most advantage of it. And you got to do it that way. Uh, let's get right into it. Um, first, before we get into uh, probably the season, you know, recap the top moments of the year, I want to give a quick hot take. Uh, I always, you know, whenever someone wins a national championship, the first thing you see is the swag, the hat and the t-shirt. I want to start with your comments right now. I am wearing the national championship hat. It just came in uh, literally five minutes ago to my apartment, and I thank everybody at Fanatics for getting it to me on time uh, so that I could wear it for this podcast. But I want to start with you, Sam. What did you What did you think of the hat, the the, the locker room shirt, or any just the the gear in general? I uh, one of my friends who I was at the game with, he took a video of us waiting outside the team hotel to uh, welcome the players back at the end, like you know, hours after the game. I think I mentioned this on Wednesday. And one of the things I was shouting at all the players was, I want that hat. I want that hat. Uh, I think that the hats, they're awful, but they're also amazing. And I really want it. I think the the gold lining on the underside of the bill is amazing. And the big Nike swoosh is amazing. And the fact that it only has like a small Duke logo and that most of the hat is just national champions. Uh, it's so obnoxious and so wonderful. And, and I really, really want one. It's, oh my God. They're it's, so, it's so awful. Gold. Go ahead, Jason. It's so I know you awful. Got it's awful. I'm, I know I'm betraying the fact that I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm being generous to say mid-40s. Some would say late-40s. And Sam, you're in your 20s still, but those hats are awful. They're just yeah, terrible looking. There's too I know, much they're gold. Amazing. I can't wait to wear one around all the time. <laughs> they're not blue. Duke gear should be blue. What do you mean? I thought that black is one of our colors now. No, no. You're too young. <laughs> You're you too should, young. You I should I just, probably I, tell I Nike that. Uh, I, I'm looking well, at by the way. I'm looking. I'm looking online at pictures of Tyus Jones from the press conference after the game, and he's wearing the hat, and it looks like his forehead is glowing because the gold is reflecting off yeah. his forehead. Yeah, it, awful. It, They're terrible. Because he, he's made of gold. He has the gold. He, he has the glow. <laughs> um, did you guys? Did you guys happen to watch the Duke Blue Planet video? I think it came out yesterday of Justice Winslow, like presenting all of the team's swag. Did either of you watch that yet? I watched it this morning, and I literally – he must have – for those of you who haven't seen the video, he must have put out probably 60 different things that they have worn just from Selection Sunday until the end. And I I was sitting there crying 
looking at my wallet saying, how do I get my hands on every single piece? Every single piece. Every single piece that he was, that he was gearing up. And it was, it was tremendous. It, it, a lot of it's really cool. Um, uh, Jason, you might actually like the, the shirt that they wore at the coming home celebration, the one in Cameron on Tuesday. That is a blue shirt. It's also a Nike shirt. Um, and it's also on sale. So you might want to check that one out because that might be more up your alley because it's just blue and white. And I think I'm going to grab that pretty soon too. Yeah. I, I, the, the answer to the question as to whether or not the NCAA pays these guys for playing basketball is they don't pay them in money, but they sure as heck pay them in swag. Yes. And the swag yeah, I, was phenomenal. I worked for the Duke football team for a couple of years and the amount of free dry fit Nike apparel that I, that I accrued over that time forced me to get rid of all of the like other ancillary Duke stuff that was in my drawer because I just didn't have enough room for it. So I'm looking through and trying to find Duke basketball apparel to wear this week. And I don't have that much of it left um, because it's all like, it's all like dry fit uh, Duke football swag. So that's what I've been rocking this week. And, and I, I feel good about it. I was going to say that the, the thing I want, there is the, 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 the Duke university store is selling a white shirt that has blue lettering that says uh, blue devils national champions. And then it has, um, it has a picture of a ball going through a net and underneath there are five nets and it says 1991, 1992, 2001, nice. 2010, 2015. So, so seeing as I was alive and watching all of those, unlike you youngsters. I was alive. We were <laughs> alive. We were watching them. Yeah. I just don't necessarily alive. them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, I think that's the one I'm gravitating to first, although it won't be the last, that's for sure. I'm going down to Duke in a couple weeks, uh, uh, and I I pray that I am I am unemployed and have no money, so that I have no incentive to spend. But I mean, let's be real: half of Duke is coming back in the car up to DC with me when I go down there. I'm I'm buying everything. It's going to be ridiculous. Uh, but on this hat, I'm wearing this right now. I hate like I hate snapbacks. Hate them. I am a fifty nine fifty new era fitted guy for life. If I'm going to have one snapback, it is this gaudy, gold, glowing national championships hat that is that I'm wearing right now. But uh, it's really cool, and I'm probably going to wear it for the next like month or so, and then retire it until the next time we make the Final Four, when it'll be broken back out again for good luck. Yeah, I'm that'll be next backs. year, right? Next, it'll year, be right? next year in, in Houstonapolis, <laughs> um, because I think from now on, I think we should call every city that the Final Four is in. Whatever city it is, Apolis, because we win only in the Apolises. That works. Cool. I'm in. All right. Let's get into the top moments of the year. Certainly, there was a ton to pick out uh, from the national championship year. We had a lot of we had a, a, one of the craziest seasons I think we've ever had uh, in recent memory, at least. Uh, but we wanted to get into our kind of top moments of the year. And I'll start with you, Jason. Give me one of your top moments of the entire year. And I know there's a lot to pick. There, there are a lot to pick from, and there's so many great moments. And and I almost, I came close to going with the entire first half against Wake Forest. We Grayson Allen outscored the entire Wake Forest team. Oh my god, that was so much fun. That was just great. But the the moment I went with was uh, the moment that I think turned the entire season around. Um, uh, it was January seventeenth. Duke had um, been beaten fairly badly by NC State and then absolutely housed at home by Miami. I mean, we'd been crushed by Miami. I don't know. Folks, when they look back on this season, they're going to look back on that score, 90 to 74, and they're going to be like, how did we get walloped like that? And it wasn't Miami? that close. It, it wasn't, wasn't as yeah, close exactly. as 16. No. It, it exactly. got close at the end, I think. 
Yeah, and and Duke was going in to play at Louisville. Louisville was, uh, a, you know, was a top ten, a top five team at the time, um, and they came down a little bit, but this was still an excellent, excellent team. Eventually, a Final Eight team. Um, and I don't remember if it was the first possession or not, first, third, fifth, tenth, but somewhere early in that first half, you won't find it in the box score because box scores don't note what defense you're playing. Duke played his own. And every single one of us in the Duke fan nation had to pick our jaws up off the floor to see Duke playing zone. Um, but the reason that's my key moment is that I think that's the moment where Coach K said, I'm going to adjust and do what it takes to win with these guys. And he began to really teach them all the skills they would need to turn into the defensive juggernaut. And that's what they became late in the season. He turned them into a defensive juggernaut, and it started with them figuring out how to play zone, how to help each other while playing zone, because zone help is almost in some ways more difficult than man-to-man help. Um, But that moment against Louisville is what paved the way for Duke to hold their opponents. And by the way, ready for this? I'm going to give you the scores our opponents scored in the NCAA tournament. 56, 49, 57, 52, 61, 63. There isn't a single one of those point totals that wins you a game against Duke basketball. And that's why Duke basketball won every one of those games and won the national title. And the seeds for being that defensive juggernaut were laid on January 17th in the first half against Louisville. That's my moment. Sam, what about you? I wanted to add to what you said, which was just to note that after that Louisville game, the only team that we lost to, and we did lose to them twice, but the only team we lost to after that was Notre Dame. And knowing how Notre Dame finished the season against the ACC and then nearly beat Kentucky, I think if Jeremy Grant takes a better, um, better angle to the basket, they have a they you know they might they might knock Kentucky out of the Final Four. Uh, that Notre Dame that Notre Dame team was probably one of the best teams in the country, and that's the only team that we lost to after that. And we still played a lot of good teams, including, and I'll segue this into my moment, um, including the, at the time, number two, Virginia Cavaliers, who we played on Saturday, January 31st. Um, It was a tight game. It was in Charlottesville, similar to the national championship and lots of other games this season. We were down by nine points in the second half. uh, And we rallied to win that game. The moment from that game that I think I take away is Tyus Jones' three at the end that sort of sealed the deal. He, uh, it was only with, with, I think, like 40 seconds left. He made, he made a three-pointer that put us up enough that Virginia wasn't going to be coming back. And no, 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 it wasn't. At, it was 11. It was 11 seconds left. 11 seconds left, excuse me. And, yeah. um, and he looked at the bench, and there was, like a, there was a big eruption from not only him, but the rest of the team and Coach K and everybody. And knowing the way that the national championship game ended and, and the big three that he made at the end, that put us up by two possessions with like half left against Wisconsin. I like the sort of imagery that it that it connotes that we had that we had that moment against Virginia, which to that point was probably the best team that we had played, uh, had given us the sort of their best their best shot, um, and we had come back and beaten them. Um, we had just come off a loss to Notre Dame, our first loss to Notre Dame, which was um, which was in South Bend, and a lot of people were saying that we weren't going to be able to beat Virginia. They were still at full strength with Justin Anderson. We did. I think that that was a huge point for this Duke team, and I think that that Tyus Jones three showed us that that's the kid who's going to be able to make make the big shots down the stretch, and that's what you want out of a championship point guard. And we got that from him not only in the regular season there in the ACC, but also in the postseason and against Wisconsin in the national championship game. So my uh, 
there's obviously a lot of moments, but one that always stuck out with me, like all season, and it was literally all season, came at the end of the Presbyterian game, which was the first game of the season. And that is Marshall Plumley hitting a three-pointer. Uh, it was his only attempt. Uh, I believe it was his first attempt ever. Um, so he is batting 1,000 from from the three-point stripe. Um, but just the, the way that it, he looked at it and said, you know what? Why not? We're up 68 points. Why don't I just take this three-pointer? And the I don't know if you – I know a lot of you guys by now have seen the Duke Blue Planet video of oh, the yes. shot going in and oh, yeah. the entire bench just going nuts, like out of their minds insane for this three-point attempt. Even the coaches who normally, you know, you see a seven-footer taking a three-pointer that he's not supposed to when your team's up 69 points, that is grounds for you to probably be playing on the bench for the next month and a half. But even Coach K gave a little hop, like having a lot of fun. And I think, you know, we, we didn't really, you know, think about it at the time too much. But looking for, you know, looking back and how the season progressed, it showed how the bench was together, how the whole team was together. Even the coaching staff was prepared to have fun this season. Uh, you know, even if, they, even if you win some, lose some, which we lost a few games along the way. But this team had fun the entire season. And it's, I think it started with that Plumlee three-pointer uh, in the, garbage, the most garbage of times uh, that you'll ever find in a basketball game. Um, I know there was a couple other uh, moments, and I want to kick it to you guys. Uh, Jason, did you have another moment? Uh, well, I already mentioned that that Wake Forest game, and uh, I, you know the other one you have to recall is the overtime game against Carolina, um, yeah. and and there were a whole myriad of things that happened down the stretch there in the final couple minutes to erase a huge Carolina lead and and turned it into a Duke victory. But um, in some ways, that may have been the most surprising. Uh, of victories that we had all year, j- just given how much we were down against them at home um, uh, and, and then turn that around. Uh, you know, that's obviously incredibly, incredibly memorable. Um, and I was going to mention another one, but I know Sam wants to mention it. So Sam, talk about 1K. Uh, you know, the game against St. John's, at the beginning of the season, we were looking at that game and said that it was kind of a big because it was in the middle of conference play, we were going to play an out-of-conference opponent, and it might have a huge effect on our seeding, you know, to be playing a, a competitive tournament-bound opponent from the Big East. Ultimately, I don't think that it actually made a huge difference. Uh, it was one of the early games where we, where we showed our moxie and being able to come back from, from big deficits. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the wins against Wisconsin and, and Virginia and that huge home victory against Notre Dame, I think were the things that really elevated us, uh, particularly the one against Wisconsin, which gave us the eventual right to wear the white jerseys against Wisconsin in the national championship game. But it's amazing that in a season where Coach K reached his thousandth win that we're barely even talking about it anymore because we won the national championship. And and that game at St. John's, I think, was really special for Coach K is going to play it down, but he thinks it's special because everybody everybody else told him it was special. A lot of the former players were there, and it's in New York, obviously, which is a place where Duke likes to play. There's a lot of alumni, and, and we always do well with those games. In the context of the season, maybe that, that win didn't mean as much as some of the other ones, but Coach K reached his thousandth win. Everyone was really excited about it, and just the whole, the whole atmosphere of the thing, I think, really added to you know, a, sort of a cherry on top of, of what, was, what turned out to be a really incredible season for Duke. Yeah, it really was. Uh, one final moment that I wanted to point out, uh, you, you were mentioning the Wisconsin game, and 
It's not the actual Wisconsin game, though. That was a big game for us uh, early in the season. Um, it was just after that game that was the first official podcast of the Duke ba- episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Um, and I remember we were talking about that game um, in the podcast, and we were saying that, oh, this was a great game, and Wisconsin is a team that we're going to see later on down the road. Uh, well, call us the, you know, the Nostradamuses of, of Duke basketball because, I mean, I thought we'd see them towards the end, but I didn't think we would be playing them in the national championship game um, and beating them. Um, so that I think that was pretty cool that we started off with a team, you know, dissecting a team really that we ended up seeing again uh, for all the marbles and, and, and kind of looking back on those podcasts and how far we've come, you know, it just seems really – great that we started a podcast in a season that was so wild uh, for our team. And we were able to talk about a lot, including, you know, a lot of Duke basketball stuff and a lot of stuff off the court as well. Um, and now we get to talk, you know, we've recapped the season that brought home banner number five to Hanging Cameron. So I think that's pretty cool. Don't you, don't you guys? Yeah. And I, I think that the, that Wisconsin game was where the hype of Duke versus Kentucky kind of really got rolling nationally. I think that a lot of people were talking about both Duke and Kentucky early in the season because of Okafor and Towns and and all the different guys. But Duke going into Madison and dismantling that Wisconsin team, I think was that moment where everyone was like, oh my God, we have to see Duke and Kentucky. And sorry, Kentucky didn't live up to to get to that point. And we got Wisconsin again and got another great game. I mean, I don't think that anyone's going to say that that national championship game wasn't incredibly entertaining. But, uh, but yeah, that, I think that's the point where the hype machine sort of got, got going full swing on, on this Duke team. Right, yeah, and it was actually the uh, highest, uh, highest TV audience for a uh, national championship game in over 17 years. So uh, that means that America was watching, and, and I think it was very entertaining for everybody, uh, not just Duke and Wisconsin fans, but also neutrals uh, or, or people who just are fans of basketball. I thought that was a really entertaining game to watch from start to finish. Um, so now let's kind of shift into the offseason, and we'll start with the obvious, uh, uh, you know, obvious questions that we have, and, and that is who is coming back and who is going to the NBA. Uh, we obviously know that Quinn Cook is departing as a senior, and there are three freshmen who uh, are potentially going to the NBA. Well, yesterday we found out that one of them is going pro, uh, and it's no surprise, Jalil Okafor will be entering his name into the NBA draft will probably be uh, at worst a top three pick probably uh, in, in contention to go number one. Uh, Jason, let's start with you. Your thoughts on Jill going pro uh, and is this a surprise to you? Uh, no, it, it can't be a surprise to anyone. Um, and I think anyone who's surprised by uh, what Justice Winslow or Tyus Jones decide to do if they both decide to go pro. And it's possible by the time that this podcast comes out, that they will have already announced their decision. So pretend folks like you don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anyone can be surprised with any of these three guys making the decision they're going to end up making. Um, if it is to go pro, uh, the way the NBA's rules for contracts are structured, you are at a great, great advantage if you can get to free agency quickly. And the, the fastest way to get to free agency to declare for the NBA draft as quick as you can um, to begin accumulating your NBA service time, so to speak. Um, Jalil Okafor is going to be, as you said, probably the number one or number two pick in the draft. Of course, he turns pro. We've we've seen very, very few guys in the past 
decade and a half, and especially in the past six or seven years, turned down the chance to be a top one, top two, top three pick. Uh, in fact, the uh, I, I looked into this a little bit. The only one who did it was Marcus Smart, who at the end of his freshman year, um, in a very, very weak draft, Anthony Bennett ended up going number one in that draft. Marcus Smart was talked about as potentially the number one pick. Um, he probably, if, if he declared, he probably would have been around three or four. But uh, Marcus Smart said, no, I'm going to go back to Oklahoma State for one more year and, uh, and, and play another year of basketball. And he ended up being the sixth pick in the very next draft. Um, but we just don't see guys turn down being a top five pick. And that's the same thing that's going to apply to Justice Winslow, who played so well during the month of March that everyone pretty much agrees that Justice is, if not top five, top seven, top eight. And I think we'll see him decide to come out. Tyus Jones is a little bit of a different situation because most people think he's a mid to late first rounder. And and there's a risk in there. There's a risk that you, uh, you could fall into the second round and not get a guaranteed contract. There's there's a risk that you could end up on a team where you don't get a lot of playing time and don't get a lot, a lot of opportunity because the NBA isn't as sold on you. If you're picked outside of the first, you know, 15 or so picks, it sometimes means that the NBA is um, not convinced of your abilities. And next year is supposed to be a very, very weak draft. And I think there could be an argument made that if Tyus came back and had a, a very, very strong sophomore season, if he was interested in going to the NBA at that time, his his draft stock could be could be higher, perhaps significantly higher in what what many folks expect to be a, a much weaker draft. But I won't be surprised. I won't blame him if he follows his two buddies and and also goes for the NBA. I mean, he did just win most player of the final four. You can make an argument that the NBA is never going to be uh, going to think higher of him than they do at, at this very moment. Um, they gave us a national title. I, I don't begrudge their decisions at all. Sure, I wish and I hope they would stay but I don't expect them to. It would be really unusual if they did. Um, and, and I'm just going to look back and remember the the great, wonderful times we had with these guys because I fully expect them, all three of them, to turn pro. And by the way, you didn't mention, in the wake of his performance in the national title game, there was a little bit of NBA talk for Grayson Allen. In fact, uh, Chad Ford at ESPN ranked Grayson Allen this week as his number 31 prospect, which would be just on the cusp of being in the first round. Grayson Allen, of course, looked at that and said, you must be joking. I was the eighth man on Duke. I'm not ready to be an NBA first-round draft pick. And Grayson Allen has officially said he will be coming back to Duke. Thanks, Grayson. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Uh, Sam, what's your take on all this stuff? I wonder if Tyus Jones decides to come back, what he can specifically do to improve his NBA potential. I mean, we've seen him make big shots. Um, we know how big he, he is. He can't, not- get, he can't get taller. Yeah, he's not going to get taller. He's not going to get, you know, demonstrably bigger. I think that the one thing he could do is improve his defense. But I don't see I don't see enough improvement happening between his freshman and his sophomore year that all of a sudden he's he's, you know, a and also he has all-star potential as opposed to being a rotation guy. You know, outside of outside of the draft being a lot weaker this year, I think it makes more sense for him to go. And and I did uh I did see on on social media somewhere that Laura Keeley was saying that there's no way that he's coming back. Um, he won the championship. He wants to go out with his friends and and that's fine. I, I think that, you know, that as you said, it's up to them. They, it, it, it appears, you know, from our, from our very far away perspective that they were obviously engaged with the team this year. They were, they were in school. They were participating in the whole 
in the whole Duke basketball college experience. So you can't begrudge them the opportunity to go make millions of dollars next year, which they're all going to do if they end up being first round picks. So, you know, ultimately it's up to them. And I, I was talking with some friends the other day about how one of the interesting things, and then of course this trend was bucked when, when Jaleel Okafor committed or not committed a, a player that he was leaving. But one of the things that's been interesting the last few years about Duke guys that have gone early is that they often take a few weeks after the tournament to declare. And our speculation, we don't, we don't really know how this works, but what I think is the reason behind that is that Coach K has obviously a very deep network of NBA contacts. And I would imagine that he sort of goes to bat for all of the guys that are potentially going out so that they really get a sense of who likes them and, and where they see them as, as, as professionals and, and where they're going to get drafted so that the kids can make the most informed decision possible. I think, obviously, for Okafor, it wasn't such a hard decision. He's going to be, I think he's going to be the number one or number two if, if someone decides that Towns is better. But for a guy like Tyus Jones, I think a huge part of the decision is, where am I going to go in the draft? Because there's all the international players. There, there's all kinds of factors that go into, you know, maybe he gets drafted 13th. Maybe he gets drafted 31st. And, and there's a huge difference between those two things, and, and that can factor in. So I wouldn't be surprised if Tyus Jones takes a while to – obviously now he's going to declare this weekend. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if Tyus Jones takes a while to, to figure out what he's going to do and to really look into the information and, and for Coach K to have some – have some not input maybe, um, but you know, to, to give him some information about, about what exactly he can expect because the – one of the huge benefits of going to a program like Duke is that you have all those, you know, basketball community connections. You have USA basketball and, and coach K connection, all the, a lot of different NBA teams and, and Tyus Jones should be leaning on that to, to make the best decision for him. And you know what? I don't know what the best decision for him is. I don't know what he wants. I don't know what his mother wants. Um, but I trust that he's in a good place and that he's going to, he's going to figure it out in a way that makes him happy. Yeah. You mentioned um, yeah, coach K network and in their evaluation of of talent to see where they're going to fall um i think duke does that and coach k does that better than just about any program in the country if you think about you know our guys and when they come out and and where they are slated when they come out uh go in the nba draft they usually go in about that same spot or they surprise I mean, there were surprises like Miles Plumley and, and Nolan Smith going into the first round when most people had them pegged as early second round uh, entering the draft. So I think, though, I know these guys are going to take, you know, take what Coach K has to offer uh, as far as advice. Um, and I think they're going to take that to heart because chances are he's pretty spot on. He's usually spot on when it comes to uh, – where they're going to fall in the line and whether and you taking that information to evaluate you know, whether it's good to go pro or not. Um, having said that, I, I, you know, I think, you know, jaw going, he's like I said, he's going to be one to at the worst third in the, in the draft. I think if he's third in draft is, is an absolute shock. Um, so it makes sense for him to go. He's not going to get any higher than where he is right now. Um, and like you guys have said, Tyus is probably at that cusp where he could come back. He could stay um, with next year's draft being, you know, pretty weak on the weak side. Um, he has an opportunity to improve, but he also could stay right where he is in the middle of the first round. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. I think he's the one um, that will affect recruiting down the line um, as well as uh, will affect how our team's prospects for next season. Um, I think Justice has played uh, to the point where he's probably going to be um, – 
at worst, a, the seventh pick in the draft. Uh, Detroit Pistons, I'm talking to you. Um, and, and, I, you know, one of my friends, Jeff, um, we talk about this every year. And our saying is, if, if you've won the national championship, you have the right to do whatever you want to do. And in that case, these guys have all won a national championship for Duke University. And if they decide that that is their legacy and it's time for them to explore um, the professional level, then that is their that is their right. And I'd, I'll be happy for them. And I think everyone else will. Um, do you guys have so you guys else? aren't So you guys aren't upset that Mike Dunleavy skipped his senior year? No, I'm not upset that he skipped it. I think what a lot of people were shocked at is how late it came. Because if you recall back at that time, the the deadline to declare was much later in the in the calendar. I think it was like June. So he was in class. He was in summer school, and all of a sudden, the day like two weeks before the draft, he said, "Oh yeah, I'm going." So I think that's what took everybody by surprise. I don't think him leaving was a surprise. What was like what got people upset? It was when he left. Um, so I think that was a little bit different. Now it, the, the deadline is in what a couple weeks. I think it's on the 23rd. Uh, yeah. So these guys have much quicker uh, uh, deadlines to make these decisions. But it, what that does is it also helps uh, these coaching the coaching staff prepare for the team a little bit earlier instead of well after recruiting's done, finding out you're losing a, a player that you were relying on uh, uh, for the next season. I should have added. I should have added in talking about Tyus Jones that. One of the things that I think that Coach K you know, hopefully is providing for these kids when they're deciding whether or not to go is what's the plan for them next year? You know, what what development does he want to see from them for them to feel like they're growing as a player? And so when he puts it out for Tyus Jones, he says, listen, here's where here's where all of my analysis says that you're likely to go in the draft. And if you decide to stay, here's the things that I'm I'm gonna work on with you and the place that I want to get you to, which of those seems like the best choice to you. That that I think is is the way that that the Duke coaching staff interacts with the players as far as making the draft decisions. I just wanted to throw that in. That was a thought I had earlier. So, so yeah. I've got I've got two comments really quickly about um, the the draft process and and kids declaring and all that other kind of stuff. The first one is um, you guys were talking about Dunleavy. Uh, uh, one of the things that's always bothered me about the process is I think it's difficult, almost impossible, for coaches to prepare for kids who are going pro. Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of people are looking at Tyus Jones possibly declaring and saying that Duke's going to be in a little bit of a bind on the perimeter next year if he does declare that, you know, we're going to have no, you know, natural point guard on the roster. Um, it's Did very you watch Grayson Allen during the national championship game? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I sort of think Grayson Allen's a little bit better on the wing than he's going to be potentially at point. But, you know, Grayson Allen, Luke Kennard, um, you know, that's and, and Matt Jones, uh, you know, maybe the only real true perimeter guys we have on the whole roster um, next year. Uh, and it, it, it's the, the Mike Dunleavy situation. Uh, the other one that I really recall was Luol Deng, who who Duke was absolutely expecting to come back. Um, and the team in terms of preparing to compete the next year wasn't wasn't able wasn't able to prepare the way they'd like to. Um, because they lost a guy somewhat unexpectedly. I don't begrudge Dunleavy or Luol Deng the fact that they went to the NBA. They both were very, very high draft picks. Um, and, and they're both I've still had, playing many years later. Yeah, and have had very successful NBA careers, and they've made many, many, many millions of dollars. Um, I, and I don't begrudge Tyus Jones if he decides to take that path. But I, I hate a process that 
that hamstrings coaches a little bit. And then sort of hand in hand with that, one thing I want to point out, um, you know, there are a lot of people who are saying, uh, they're calling Duke's title this year, one and done, one W-O-N. Um, but it's a play on, of course, one and done, the one and done NBA rule um, for the draft. And, and they're talking about how, oh, look at how Coach K adapted and changed and brought in three one and done kids the same way Kentucky does. And then he won a national title. That's false. That is not what Duke did. Now, I'm not saying whether that strategy is good or bad or, you know, or anything like that. But Coach K goes out and recruits the best players he can. And sometimes they are guys who turn into one and done players and sometimes they don't. But there's no way anyone can tell me that at this time last year when Duke had Jaleel Okafor, Tyus Jones and Justice Winslow, um, you know, signed up and ready to come play here that you knew for certain that all three of those guys were going to leave. Maybe Jalil. Everyone said Jalil was this unbelievably skilled and prepared man, and he'd be a one and done. But Justice Winslow was consensus, like the top 13, top 13, top 15, maybe some guys had him top 10. He wasn't, he wasn't consensus top 10 recruit. Tyus Jones, everyone thought was a little too small and not quite athletic enough. No one thought these guys were surefire pros when Duke recruited them. Um, and there are guys who are going to be coming back for their sophomore, junior season who were every bit the same recruit that Justice Winslow was, but they didn't turn into the same sort of force of nature that Justice did during this season. And as a result, they're coming back to school. Kentucky had Willie Stein, Willie Cauley Stein for three seasons. Everyone thought Willie Cauley Stein was a single, was a one-year player. Kentucky's going to have Alex Poitras as a senior. He's a senior, and everyone was certain that guy was going to be one and done. This, this sort of hand-rigging over, oh my gosh, Duke is suddenly a one-and-done place, is complete BS. Coach K doesn't know when he recruits these kids. You don't know when they show up on campus. You don't really know until maybe they start practicing or certainly when they're playing games, whether or not they're one-and-done or they're going to take two, three, or even four years. North Carolina had Harrison Barnes for two seasons. Harrison Barnes was an absolute mortal lock to be a one-and-done until he wasn't. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And I want Duke to continue to recruit the way they've been recruiting, find the kids who fit the program, who fit what this team needs, who are going to buy in and be invested in the Duke experience. If they go after one year, fine. If they go after senior year, that's also fine. But you can't tell me that you're going to shy away from kids because you think they might develop the skills that would allow them to leave quicker than you'd like. I'm I have off my two, box. I have, I have two questions or two things to follow, Jason. First, I think one of the main strengths of this podcast is Jason Evans' hot takes. So I hope that that is a thing that we continue to have for <laughs> however, however long this project goes. The second thing is would be if I had a chance to ask Coach K a question about the whole one-and-done scenario, I wonder which era he preferred. The era where the NBA scouts were sitting next to him at high school events and watching the same kids, or now where the NBA guys aren't there, but they are showing up at his practices in the in the preseason to watch guys who have just arrived on campus because i think that they present different challenges you know in in when the nba guys are around in in the high school recruiting it's like all right we're going to recruit this kid i don't know when he's going to declare for the draft but we got to keep talking to him and he said on on the dan patrick show the other day he had a had a good interview with dan patrick and one of the things he pointed out was that he he thought he was good early on, you know, when, when high school players started leaving for the NBA, he 
was good at recognizing early on which kids they were going to be and which ones they weren't. And that the only one that he really seriously pursued all the way to the end was Kobe Bryant. So um, I don't know. They, they're very different situations. And, and I wonder which of them he thinks is, is easier or better or, or what his take is. Well, what you're, you're, what you're talking about is the, the baseball model, which is, uh, which uh, you guys, I've advocated it here before. I'll advocate mm-hmm. it again. And then Donald, I'll, I'll let you comment because I've been ranting for a while now. Um, if kids want to go out of high school, they should be able to go out of high school. But if they go to college, they should be committed to college for two or three seasons. Baseball does it three seasons. A lot of people are saying college should do it two seasons. I don't know what the number is, but uh, I, I much prefer that. There are kids who don't belong in college. Why are we forcing them to go to school? But if they do go to school, I think we should at least pretend like we're going to get them halfway to getting a degree. Donald? I, I agree with all of that. Um, and you know, you were t- talking about how we don't recruit players who are one and done until they actually go. You're not a one and done player until you actually leave. And we've noticed that with uh, not just not just freshmen here, um, you know, but, you know, again, remember, Josh Roberts was supposed to be a one and done player as well. Uh, and he ended up staying a couple seasons. Um, and, you know, we could read into, you know, whatever the reasons why he left after two years or, or why he didn't leave after freshman year. But these players are going to be as long as they're involved in the college process, as coach says, unpacks their bags and enjoys the collegiate experience, then it's fine if they leave after a year. So I, I think that's what we, you know, what our coaching staff has been doing. And for the most part, it seems like these players while they're here are enjoying college. And that's all I care about. But I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, we've talked a little bit, we, we hinted a little bit at it. Um, we're now, let's talk about nationally some of these players that are coming out, for instance, uh, yesterday when Jaleel Okafor announced that he was going pro, Kentucky announced that their top seven players are all entering the NBA draft uh, early. So uh, start with you, Sam. Pick, take, you know, take either Kentucky or another school that you know, we, we would like to pick on uh, and, and talk about their players going pro. Well, obviously, this is yesterday was the greatest day in the history of Kentucky basketball because seven guys are going to the NBA, and who knows how many of them are going to be first round Well, the second greatest. The greatest night will be the draft. Right. right. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm confusing my most important days in Kentucky basketball history. <laughs> but I think, that, I think that Jason is going to have fun takes on, on the Harrison Twins. I, I didn't want to talk about Kentucky as much as I wanted to talk about a fellow from down the road, J.P. Tokido at UNC, decided to declare, uh, I think, yesterday. And it was met with some confusion i think from both carolina fans and national writers and people on you know fans of other teams jp Tokido is not projected to be a first round pick anywhere he had some um sort of borderline comments about about what it would mean to stay in school and how he doesn't think that he's gonna he's gonna progress as much in school as he is in the d league or something uh wait wait, wait. Which I, hold on hold on did you say borderline because i oh. think he Took the bridge to nice. between the bridge between him and North Carolina, and dumped a bunch of gasoline on it and struck a match. He's he burned here's, his bridge back to Carolina. Here's what he told. I have the I have the Yahoo Sports article. Here's what he told Yahoo Sports. Going in, I know I'm not a first round pick. I know my jumper needs work, and I'm putting in that work now, and we'll keep doing it. My jumper is something that is uh, something that is a second round pick. Oh, hang on, that's not the. Um, that wasn't the get to the part Roy. where he says Roy doesn't develop his players. I know, I know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to find out. <laughs> oh, um, I, uh, I feel like there can be a lot more to me as a player, more than just 
defensive player who can occasionally dunk the ball. Side note, JP Tokeno is awesome at dunking the ball. He should not be embarrassed about just being a dunker. Fair. Back to the quote. Back to the quote. I know I can be so much more, but I'm not sure that I'm pushed to be that much more in college, is what he told me about sports. So JP Tokeno doesn't necessarily believe in the Roy Williams development plan. And, you know, we, we brought up Harrison Barnes really quick, and he's, he's sort of exhibit A on Roy doesn't develop his players well enough to you know, get to the NBA in time. I think that it's different for every guy. I don't know what, what J.P. Tokido's attitude is. But if we're talking about dudes who were once upon a time supposed to be one and done, Tokido, I think, was the top kid in his class like in his sophomore or junior year in high school. When he committed to UNC, that was a big deal. It was like they're taking a kid who's, who's from Wisconsin. He's from far away. And you could recruit him a number of other programs. He recruited him. And he was supposed to be like, he was supposed to be a really big deal. And, you know, he was a... He's a useful player for UNC, but he's projected to go to the second round. And Jason, you mentioned earlier about how the fastest way to get to free agency is to declare for the draft and go immediately. Jokido is taking the fastest way to free agency, which is declaring for the draft and not being ready to be a first round pick because he's going to be a free agent in one or two seasons, not the the four or five that it's going to take Jolly Aloka for. That's if he makes a roster. And that's well, yeah. that's up for well, debate too. So I think, yeah, there was... I, I, I Jokido better have... JP Tokido better get his passport in order because um, I think he's going to be playing in uh, a foreign league. It's interesting that when you look at, at the NBA draft, being a first-round pick is awesome because you get guaranteed money. You're there at least, I think, two seasons, and and things are okay. You you have the opportunity to play your way into being a regular player, but being a second-round pick doesn't get you anything. You're not guaranteed a contract. You're not guaranteed to make the team. You're not guaranteed even to be thrown into the D-League. Um, you're you're guaranteed nothing. Just that your rights go to to one team. And and there was an interesting discussion uh, a couple of years ago. I think when when Seth Curry left, that you know maybe it's better for Curry. And he didn't end up getting drafted, nor did uh, nor did Andre Dawkins. And it was you know it's better for them not to get drafted so that they can go out and talk to every team and try to latch on to a team that has the best situation for them in summer league and in the development league for the best opportunity to get to the pros. I think that's a really interesting sort of setup of the NBA draft. But Jay- did you want to uh, did you want to touch on the Kentucky kids? Um, yes, I think I do want to talk about the Harrison twins. Who, uh, by the way, the Harrison twins are another proof of the point that you that recruiting one and dones is a is a random um, prospect at best. Andrew and Aaron Harrison were locks to be one and done. These guys were considered by many to be like the number two, three, four players in the class um, uh, a year ago. They ended up. Um, uh, coming back for their sophomore season, um, they probably uh, one of them maybe could have been a first rounder if they'd come out after their freshman year last year. But Andrew. they were going to come back and yeah, Andrew, they were going to come bo- back. Actually, they a- both they both were projected to be uh, Aaron the 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 point guard Aaron was projected to be mid to late first round, but Andrew was slated to be in the lottery last year. So they by the end of the season was he by really the end of the, the season, season? Yeah. Then that's why it was a shock to many that they that they didn't come out, um, and they probably lost millions of dollars by staying another year, especially now that now where they're projected to be probably second round. Well, I, I, I'm a lot of people think that Aaron's not even get drafted. I mean, Aaron, that's, they're, they're that's only, possible too. There are only sixty some kids who are drafted, and and most folks who who maintain a you know a hundred person. Um, list of all the kids in uh, in college, uh, you know, who are uh, who are eligible for the draft, have have Aaron in the 80s. 
Um, they're both going to have to have very, very good workouts, I think, to even get drafted, even in the second round. Um, I think they're likely to be playing in the D-League or playing overseas or something like that. Um, uh, but, you know, they're, they're another great example of this notion that um, any coach has any idea whether a kid actually is one and done. Uh, some of these guys from Kentucky, how is Dakari? Everyone's saying Dakari Johnson's, you know, probably going to go in the first round. Dude barely even got off the bench for Kentucky this year. He was not a significant player in games where they were, you know, playing against legit opponents, a game that was on the line. And he's going to be, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get and what the NBA wants. And Grayson Allen in the national championship game. He played way, he played fewer minutes than Marshall Plumley in the national championship game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you, you know, we, we talked about JB Tokido for a moment. Um, can I just, big shout out to Roy Williams, who has somehow managed to perfect the art of taking guys who are clear NBA talents and turn them into career college guys. Roy, I, I don't know how you're doing it, but Bryce Johnson um, uh, and and Justin Jackson and Marcus Page, these guys absolutely appeared to be guys who are going to be short time in the in college ranks. Bryce Johnson and Justin Jackson, there's no way those guys should have been more than maybe one and done. And they're both coming back. And Bryce Johnson's going to play his senior year next year at North Carolina. Roy, I don't know how you managed to turn these, you know, stud NBA prospects into college guys who who can't even make all ACC. But way to go, buddy. That's that's the way to build a team long term taking your players who are really, really great talents and having those talents become wasted. Congratulations, Roy. I don't know how he does it because if you remember um, uh, what's his, uh, McAdoo last year leaving, probably should have left you know, two years before that, but oh, waited yeah. for his junior year to leave. He, he has a knack for getting these players and somehow I don't know what he has on them if he's like, if you if you leave, I can I can air all this dirty laundry about you, and they end up staying. Um, but they end up staying a couple years past their shelf life, uh, at least for the NBA. Uh, I know I know McAdoo's been going back and forth between the D League and, and the league this year, uh, and you know these players next year like Page and and uh, uh, Bryce Johnson, they may be doing the same. Bryce Johnson might have a, a better chance at sticking in the league, um, but Marcus Page at this point. He's gonna he's gonna find it really difficult to latch on, especially with the talent level of of point guards there are in in the NBA. Uh, even the backups, uh, he's gonna have a real hard time latching on uh, at this point. Whereas a couple of years ago, he probably would have been you know a lottery picker or mid first mid to late first round and would have had at least that financial stability. Yeah, a year ago, there's no question Marcus Page would have been mid to late first round. Um, at, at, you know, mid I think mid first rounder. Yeah. Um, and and he's looking now. You know, next year will be his senior season. It's hard to project because he was hurt so much of this year. It really hurt his stock. Uh, you know, he's capable of being good enough to play his way into um, into the first round again. But but right now, it doesn't look like. It. Although you know, we have to note next year's draft is going to be very very weak. The the current the incoming freshman class, the the high school class of 2015, is considered much, much, much weaker than the, the current guys who are freshmen who were who are high schoolers last year. Um, and as an, as a result, that's going to impact the draft as well. Um, and this is uh, the 2016 draft, um, they're saying, is going to be one of the weaker drafts we've seen in the past decade or so. So maybe some of these guys will play their way up a little bit. But I, I can't – how is Carolina doing this? Uh, even going back to Harrison Barnes, how did they keep Harrison Barnes for two years? I have no idea. Before we uh, move – to sort of the the wrap, I know that we have another topic that comes back to Duke. I did want to point out that Sam Decker 
announced, uh, I can't remember if it was last night or this morning that he's leaving and he he's only skipping his senior year. So, you know, it's not like, it's not like this was such an enormous decision, you know, college playing time wise, but I am very interested to see how Sam Decker does in the league. He is properly sized for his position. He might want, he might need to put on a little bit of weight, but he's, he's a good size for an NBA small forward. And we know from watching him in the national championship game, that that dude has game. He can shoot. He can drive. I mean, he didn't make his shots in the game, but we we knew from from watching him before that he can shoot. He can drive. He can do a lot of things. And I think he's going to be an interesting NBA player, especially because it looks like he's projected sort of the late mid first round. So he's going to end up on a good team that'll be able to develop him. I, I think that of all the guys on that Wisconsin team that we saw that was so good, Kaminsky was the best player in college. Sam Decker, I think, might have more pro potential just because his his size and his game translates to an NBA position maybe a little better than Kaminsky does. I just yeah, wonder no, about how Sam, I don't know I don't know how Sam Decker's going to play defense on NBA wings. Right, I think that's that, going to be a problem for him. That's going to be a huge problem, but he he's going to be able to score, so uh, he'll he'll stay. Yeah. I mean, not that not that it's an, a fair comparison, but Steph Curry doesn't play a lot of defense either. I don't think that Sam Decker is going to be Steph Curry. <laughs> stop, stop. But just just saying, some guys can get by on one side of the court. Well, I was yeah. thinking about him being more um, uh, like a Kyle Korver type. You know, he can come in and be not necessarily that type of three-point specialist, but a long-distance long specialist with somebody with a little bit of length. That is something that's always welcome in the league. And, you know, I think that's something that will keep him, uh, keep him in the league for, you know, quite a while. Oh, man. Donald, are you comparing white guys to white guys? Nah, I was just saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Okay. He, 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 ain't, he ain't a good enough shooter. No, he's not, he's not going to be. No, no, that's why I say he's he's he is a poor man's McDonald's cup of coffee, like to to uh, Corver. But you know, if he can if he can keep shooting well from the outside with his length, he will he will have a job in the NBA. And I, I have I, a question. I about agree. That. I agree. Hey, we ready to do Player of the Year? Yes, let's do it. So let's look back throughout the entire season and. You know, we've been doing these every week. You know, some players uh, – we've had a lot of players had, you know, get shout-outs on, on player of the week. But now it is time for the player of the year. I will start with you, Sam. Who is your player of the year? I picked between three guys. I was deciding between Jolly Lope for Justice Winslow and Quinn Cook. And there's – I think there's an extended reason why I didn't include Tyus Jones in that group. And I don't exactly know what it is. But I'll figure it out one day. The bottom line is I I concluded that Quinn Cook is my player of the year for Duke. He was not the most talented uh, player on the team. I mean, he's not he's not certainly going to have the best NBA career unless something magical happens to him. Um, but he improved so much from last season. And one of the things that I noticed when I, I was looking up some stats on him earlier, and one of the things that jumped out to me is that Quinn Cook was really, really good as a sophomore when we didn't have anyone and done guys and when he was kind of leading the team. Um, he regressed a little bit uh, as a junior. His, I mean, his points per game remained about the same, um, but he didn't get as many assists and and sort of everything about him. He was playing fewer minutes, and maybe you know, obviously, he and Jabari Parker didn't play the same position. But there's you know, there's only so many guys on the court. His senior year, Quinn Cook stepped up so much. He hit 45 percent of his shots. He hit nearly 40 percent of his threes. He averaged 15 points a game, which was up from about 11 and a half, which is what he had averaged the last two years. His assist numbers were down, but the leadership that he provided to this team, the the way that he mentored Tyus Jones, and in particular, 
the way that he adapted so quickly to having Tyus Jones on the team and to be the starting point guard. I think that Duke was a Duke was not a best team in the country type of team with just the talent of Okafor, Winslow, and Jones. I think that Quinn Cook's leadership and his his ability to move around on the court and his improvement on defense makes him the player of the year. Um, he's not he didn't get recognized as as a first team All American like Okafor did, but I think that that I'm going with Quinn Cook as my player of the year and because I was shouting him out so early on the podcast. So Quinn Cook, that's my guy. I think that you uh, you made a great case for Quinn Cook, and I considered Quinn um, because of the the leadership aspect. But the guy I went with was Justice Winslow, who uh, more than uh, anyone else on this team, uh, I think transformed his game and turned Duke into the team that could win the national title. Uh, I went back and and looked. There there was a stretch, and you guys remember it well from uh, uh, the. the you know, middle of middle of January, starting with that NC State game where he shot three of 13. Um, and then he followed it up against Miami, shooting one of six. And then he was just one of three against Louisville, two of seven against Pittsburgh, 0 for one against St. John's. Um, there was that stretch where where we really thought Justice Winslow, you know, was not going to be a main huge contributor for Duke. During those games, he shot 23% from the field, which is atrocious. <laughs> it's just terrible. Um, and then he started to turn it around. And by the time we hit February, and especially into the month of March, Justice Winslow became um, the best player on the floor for Duke. Uh, I don't think there's anyone who would dispute that. Tyus Jones kept on winning those most outstanding player awards. And we all knew that Justice Winslow was the guy who deserved to win them, maybe not in the championship game. But uh, Justice was amazing. His ability, uh, he became a much, much better rebounder late in the season. He had a nice run of double-figure rebound games starting in late January, early February that carried into the NCAA tournament. And by the way, Justice, the scariest thing in all of college basketball was Justice Winslow grabbing a defensive rebound, putting that ball on the floor, and heading up court against the defense because ain't no way you're going to stop him. Just follow him and pray because you're not going to stop him when he's on his way to the basket. He became much better at getting assists. Uh, his game rounded into something really impressive. And guys, by the end of the season, once the season was over, Justice Winslow was the best three-point shooter on the Duke basketball team. Um, if you look at the stats, he was number one in three-point shooting, and it certainly wasn't because he didn't take many of them, because we were counting on him to take a decent number of threes every game. Uh, I, I, I saw amazing remarkable athletic things from him. He probably was part of more highlights in terms of, you know, oh, wow moments as anybody else on the team. And uh, look, if I had the first or second pick in the draft, I know I'm taking Jalil Okafor, but I think that when we look back on this draft in five, seven years, we're going to look at guys who were taken ahead of Justice Winslow and go, how did that happen? Because I think Justice Winslow is going to turn into quite LeBron James, but he's going to turn into one of the best players in the NBA someday. And how fortunate and lucky we were to have him um, for the time we had him and to have him playing his best basketball. He's not gone yet. In, yeah, you're right. But have <laughs> him playing his best basketball in February and March. He's the reason we won the national title. So that's why I picked Justice Winslow. Donald, your turn. So I, once again, I had my best, but this time it paid off. Uh, I was debating between uh, – Jalil Okafor, Justice Winslow, Tyus Jones, and Quinn Cook. I'm glad that you guys mentioned two of those names because I'm going to go with a third. I am going with Jalil Okafor this time. With all due respect to Tyus Jones, I was it was down to him and Ja, and I in the end I went with Big Ja. 
from the moment he stepped on campus, he was supposed to be the guy. And for 99.9% of the season, he lived up to that billing, in my opinion. Um, he took on the best uh, that the nation had to offer. And most of the time, he was outshining a lot of people. Uh, and he had every, you know, every bit of pressure behind him being, you know, big job, being one of the, you know, top two players in the nation along with Frank Kaminsky. Um, and even in the first bout with the first battle we had with Wisconsin, he, he took that challenge head on. And for a freshman to do that is incredible to me. A lot of people back away from that pressure, but he seemed to embrace it. Even if he wasn't having a good game, there was a lot of moments in each game that you could look back and say, big, big job being on the floor was the difference. Uh, or big job helped get that player, helped clear out the lane so that Justice can do work or for Tyus or Quinn to do work. Um, so that's who I ended up with. It was obviously a tough choice. I, I want to give a special shout out because we have not mentioned this name on the player of the week. And this is for good reason. It's because he's the coach. I think coach K had the best coaching year that he's ever, that I've ever seen him do. Uh, I Amen. know he's been coaching Amen. longer than I've been alive, but this is his best coaching job by far. Um, and, I don't, I don't think anybody will question that with, with what he had to deal with, with what he, how he adapted to the game uh, this year by, by like, by instituting the zone, by going after some of these uh, defenses that at the time were rumored to be very, I mean, not rumored, but they were very, very good um, by attacking them and, and coming up with these plays that really let our team shine. Um, this was his best season. Uh, and I hope, and, I, I have no doubt that it has something to do with him being reinvigorated with USA basketball. Um, like I said, he's won a, a world championship and a national championship in just under a year. Um, and next year he'll be going for more, you know, more rings on his finger, um, both, both internationally and nationally. So uh, well done coach K. I think you, you know, we don't shout you out enough in the podcast um, because we're all talking about players of the week, but you were absolutely the coach. Uh, of a lifetime. And, and this, this season was no exception to that. Yeah. And by the way, you know, one stat we haven't pointed out about coach K um, I, I think the number is 24 years, 24 year span between his first national title and his, his latest, his fifth national title. 25 um, years you include both of those years. Yes. True. Mm. true. Um, that is a good thing. Well, wait, 1991 to 2015. That's 24. Oh, you're saying. Yeah. But if you include yeah, those. 1990, years. 91. Yeah. Yeah whatever. Okay. Everyone's saying that number I'm hearing is 24, regardless, whether it's 24 or 25, there's no coach that's close to that. There's no coach that's close to having, you know, uh, national titles, um, that far apart, uh, and, uh, by the way, and sprinkling, <laughs> sprinkling a few of them in between as well. Um, most coaches rise up and, and are a force of nature on the game. You know, I'm talking the great ones for a short period of time. Um, maybe a decade, maybe a decade and a half at the most. Coach K is on, he's actually on more than two and a half decades because, you know, he, it, you know his great, his first Final Four team was 1986. So we're talking three decades. Um, but, uh, you know, amazing that he's been able to do this for this long in so many different environments. Um, his first Final Four team, there wasn't even a three-point line. In 1986, there was no three-point line. Um, uh, Coach K has spanned so many eras of college basketball and is still on top. We are truly blessed. 
we certainly are. Uh, I, I, is there anything else you guys want? Go ahead. Go ahead, Sam. There, there was some discussion on the on the forum about the difference between the 2010 championship and 2015 championship and trying to trying to say which one was better or more impressive or something. They're really different. And and the takeaway I had from 2010 was that Coach K realized what kind of talent he had and built a unique team around the exact players that he had left. You know, I think maybe he thought Gerald Henderson was going to come back. He didn't. Uh, he had to bring in Andre Dawkins really quickly. He had to balance having, you know, the big guys who were older, maybe not as able to score with the with the young guys, especially Mason Plumley, who had all kinds of potential. That coaching job I think was really good because he he came up with a game plan and he was stubborn enough to stick to it, even when there were losses in the middle of the season. This coaching job I think was interesting because he realized he had all these dudes that could do a few different things, especially Justice Winslow, who, as Jason pointed out, was was kind of the do everything guy on this team. He was able to pass and shoot and rebound. Um, and Coach K developed a way for them to use their talents in lots of different ways so that it made scouting this team really complicated because you didn't know which defense we were going to throw at you. and You didn't know which guys were going to be the focus of the offense. The 2010 team, the, the scouting report was was very easily written. I mean, I remember sitting in games in camera with my buddy. I, was a stu- I guess I was standing in games, but saying, all right, next time out, these are the guys who are going to come in at the substitution. Like, I could coach this team at this point. They know exactly what they're doing. Well, not exactly, you know. There's all the motivation and stuff that, that Code K is good at. But they're, they're totally different ways of, of winning that national championship. And when we talk about you know what kind of legacy he has, the fact that he won the 2010 championship with the team that he had and the 2015 championship with the team that he ta- had, I mean, they're completely different coaching jobs. It's, it's an, amazing, an amazing run for him, um, as Jason pointed out. I mean, he's, he's arguably the greatest of all time, and, and we are really lucky to have him. Amen. Hey, you Amen. were asking for Donald. You were asking for sort of parting thoughts. I got two little things I want to mention. Um, the yeah. first one is I'm urging everyone um, go check out John Shire's Instagram feed. There's a photo on John Shire's Instagram feed that is absolutely worth taking a look at. It's from three days ago. It's from the the seventh, um, April seventh, the day after the national title. It's a picture of Justice Winslow, Jalil Okafor, and Tyus Jones on the plane flying home. All three of them are sound asleep, wearing black, you know, masks to uh, to cut off the light so they can sleep. And it's just sort of like the guys, the the aftermath, the national title, and and seeing them uh, uh, finally get a rest, finally get a break. And it's just a, it's a really cute, really funny picture. I I, I love that photo. Um, and like I said, it's on John Shire's uh, Instagram feed. And then the other thing I wanted to point out. Uh, this came out like a week or two ago, and I've been meaning to mention it on the podcast, and I keep on forgetting to. Um, Harris Interactive does a poll every year asking people who their favorite college basketball team is. And do you guys know, for the sixth year in a row, the team that was number one that the nation of the United States says is their favorite college basketball team was the Blue Devils. There's all Shocking. this hate. Everyone, everyone thinks everyone hates Duke. The reality is Duke is... Uh, uh, Duke is the most popular team. Um, and, and in fact, Harris, uh, Harris Interactive has been doing this poll since 1993. Duke has never been lower than number three in their poll. We're usually number one or number two. We've been number one for six years in a row. In 2009, UNC was number one and we were number two. And, uh, you know, you can go back and back and see it and such. The only time we've been other than one or two is 1997. We were number three. Kentucky was one, North Carolina was two, and we were number three. But I mean, even the great programs, even Gross. Kentucky, like in in 2013, Kentucky was number 10 in the poll. In 2010, Kentucky was number six. Um, Duke is the team that is always 
always at the top of this poll. We are always America's most favorite college basketball team. Now, Harris does not act ask what college basketball team you hate the most. Um, I'm glad that they don't. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> the haters would probably come out on both polls. I've, I've actually seen polls that say we are the most liked and most hated team in college basketball. Um, but you know what? I'll take either one of those because I'm wearing a nice little gold hat that says I'm a national champion. So they can hate all they want. But uh, Sam, do you have any, any more parting thoughts? No, I think that uh, I think we've summarized the season well. Yeah, that was good. Uh, and for all of you out there, we will continue to bring you uh, episodes of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Uh, as news comes in, obviously the offseason uh, will have news coming, trickling in here and there. So we're going to keep giving giving you what you want, which is the podcast. Um, so just stay tuned for that. But for now, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, for Jason Evans and Sam Klein, I am Donald Wine. Uh, go Duke and let the Duke marching band play us home.